ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm excited to welcome Masha Lipman to the podcast to talk about the current state of Russian domestic politics and foreign policy. I've been a follower of Masha's work for a long time, and I always find her analysis measured and insightful. I hope you will too. Masha Lipman is a frequent commentator on contemporary Russian affairs. She is currently the head editor of the journal Contrapunkt, a contributor to The New Yorker, and co-editor with Nikolai Petrov of The State of Russia, What Comes Next, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Here's Masha Lippmann. So we're coming toward the end of 2016, and the next year in Russia promises to be be crucial as the Kremlin decides what to do about the presidential elections in March 2018. And I thought we'd start our conversation by having you give your general impressions of the domestic and international climate Russia has experienced over the last year or so, and let's start with the domestic. How do you see the domestic situation in Russia? If we're talking about the general impression, I would say mostly it is that of uncertainty and unpredictability. Not that it's new in Russia, but I think uh, the situation has become even more uncertain and more unpredictable lately. The situation is shifting very rapidly, more so on the world scene, but uh, domestically also, maybe not, not so dramatically, but still shifting fast. And there have been several turning points in the past years. Mass protests in 2011-2012, Putin's return to the Kremlin in 2012, the economic decline, the annexation of Crimea, and the ongoing deterioration of the relations with the West, which has now reached an all-out crisis. In fact, I think we can even talk today about a change of the Russian political regime. At least it has now a different basis of legitimacy. It used to be as long as Putin was lucky with the high and rising price of oil that his legitimacy and the legitimacy of his regime was based on that he was able to deliver and deliver quite generously and people appreciated that. But this is no longer the case with many factors contributing to it. And of course, no stroke of luck anymore. The price of oil has dropped and the regime has become even more personalistic, more authoritarian more intolerant to almost any sign of disloyalty to the Kremlin. And, of course, a major change is Russia is a country at war. The legitimacy of uh, today's Russian political regime draws more on things symbolic than things material. And the government, I would say, is waging a war of attrition against autonomous actors such as non-government organizations, non-government media, and other independent players who dare express disloyalty and defiance. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by more reliant on symbolic expression and in symbols for legitimacy? I would say almost as soon, and maybe even uh, shortly before Putin returned to the Kremlin, he started to draw more and to play more in the ideological realm. This is not to say that Russia has developed a clear-cut ideology, not at all. We don't have a doctrine. But using elements of drawing more on the talk about values is something that helps the regime make up for the uh, missing prosperity. 
for something that was lost. So I would see it as a compensation for the time when the regime could actually solve any problem by uh, throwing money at it. So indeed, we have much more talk about values, uh, about Russian history, Russian glory, Russian greatness, much more about Russia's special path and its traditional values. So all of this does not, as I said, does not come down to a uh, clear-cut ideology, but certainly a lot more ideological elements that this regime is drawing on. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, the question of ideology, but do you think that this move to a more symbolic legitimacy is effective? I think it is, and it has been supported by not just by words, but also deeds. And first and foremost, of course, the annexation of Crimea, which in Russia is seen and referred to as a return of Crimea, return of uh, this peninsula to the Russian fold, something that contributed to an upsurge of Putin's legitimacy, of his very high popularity, his approval rating has remained at an amazing level of over 80% ever since Crimea was returned or annexed. It also changed the, the way the Russians perceive their country. There is a lot more nationalism and pride and patri patriotism. There is a lot more pride in the Russian military might, in the Russian, uh, Russian stature on the world scene, Russia's past. All of this have surged quite significantly after 2014. Back then, it was accompanied by a sense of euphoria, sheer happiness, uh, and I think it was a totally genuine and very broad feeling among the Russian people. Happiness over Crimea now being ours. The euphoria is gone, but the sense of pride is still there. Talk a little bit, a bit more about what you mean by the increased personalization of the regime, because on the one hand, as you said, that by the polls that we have, uh, Putin's approval rating remains very, very high. But at the same time, the government's approval rating is quite low. I think there was a poll just a few days ago that suggested that it's actually at one of its lowest points. So talk about this, this issue of personalization on the one hand and its relationship to people's attitudes towards Putin and people's attitudes towards the government. Putin in Russia, uh, and I think it is very important to understand that when we talk about this over 80% approval rating, it's not Putin being compared to somebody else. So Putin is number one, and there is another leading figure whose popularity may be a bit, a bit lower. Putin is seen as a great deal more than just the president of the country or the chief executive. He is seen, I would say, as an embodiment of the Russian statehood as a person who is way beyond and above everybody else, every other member of the Russian establishment, above any other institution. Actually, over time, throughout Putin's tenure, and Putin has been the leader of the country in two different capacities for 16 years now, all other institutions of power have been emasculated, and even more so recently. And what you mentioned as a decline of popularity of institutions such as the cabinet, the government, the Duma, emphasizes the fact that Putin is seen as the sole decision maker, as by far, by far the most important figure and institution, if you like, this one-man institution, the man who stands up to the 
hostile environment in Russia, who is there to defend Russia against the enemies, and who indeed embodies Russian statehood, which he rose to a level where it should be. And I think this is also a very important factor. Um, he made Russia great again, to use the expression that is uh, <laughs> used by um, another political figure in another country. But indeed, this is the sense in Russia that Putin made Russia great again. Now, you've given a picture of the domestic situation, and, and you made the important point to also connect this to international relations and in Russia and the international geopolitical um, atmosphere. Uh, talk a bit about Russia in the international context and how what's the what's the situation as you perceive it, but also how does this influence domestic policy? Well, as we're talking today, the situation Russia vis-a-vis -vis the West has changed quite abruptly and quite dramatically. And just these days, these past couple of weeks, literally, we are tumbling down into something that's an outright crisis. It's not. It's no longer just a deterioration. It's no longer just hostile relations. It looks like an increasing and very rapidly so crisis of relations between Russia and the United States, Russia and the West. This was really truly abrupt after months when uh, State Secretary Kerry and Russian uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov seemed to be negotiating a ceasefire, maybe uh, a peace agreement of some sort, source, uh, sort in, uh, in Syria, suddenly there is this abrupt turn and every next day, every, even every few hours, there is a new development that makes these hostilities and this crisis deeper and deeper and more and more dangerous. Of the uh, certain points, uh, uh, developments of the uh, of these past weeks, of course, uh, there was the aggravation in Syria and uh, the bombing of Aleppo and Russia being accused by some in the West of committing military crimes. Of course, the developments in Syria are by far the most important in this rapid escalation of the crisis. But also uh, uh, the United States accusing Russia of interfering in uh, the American election campaign, of uh, being uh, responsible for the hacking attempts of the uh, American political institutions. Also, it was just these days, these past weeks, that a report of the investigation of the Malaysian airliner and its shutdowns that added to the picture. And there's no end to it. Actually, the list can be continued and there is more and more developments every day and even worse anticipations and even more premonitions of things that are in store for Russia and the West. And how is this, you mentioned the fact that things have hit a crisis point, and that's certainly the impression you get from a lot of the reporting and the comments and the actions of both governments. How is this being played in Russia? How, how are her Russian experts who are working in, in the country, foreign policy uh, people and other observers of Russian politics, how do they understand what's going on with this crisis, international crisis? Well, as always, this depends on who you're talking to. Of course, there is any number of loyalists, of experts that are first and foremost concerned about pleasing the Kremlin with their analysis. And the line there, of course, is vilifying and uh, smearing and painting uh, the West as the only party that is to blame for this deterioration, for this unraveling, accusing the United States of every sin there, there can be. And of course, there are others also. There are analysts who mostly uh, appear online 
and share their thoughts, but quite accessible to whoever wants to uh, to read that. It shouldn't be one shouldn't think that Russia is the scorched earth, so no dissent opinion is can be expressed these days. Of course, there is uh, every opportunity for anybody interested to 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 read an an analysis that's different that describes the situation as very dangerous, but and does not lay the blame on just one side. And I think, as in any bad crisis, bad conflict, at some point, it is no longer possible to say who is to blame for that. Both parties are to blame. And I think at this point in time, and I would uh, re- uh, I would return to what I said at the beginning, the unpredictability, the uncertainty is such as analysts are at a loss to predict just how this will evolve and, and whether there are some uh, really horrific crises in store for us. Well, let's step back to some of the themes you've been dealing with in, in some of your writings recently. One of the, your most recent publications for The New Yorker dealt with the 25th anniversary of 1991, the, the failed communist putsch. And this was back in August. And as we all know, this, this was a critical event um, that accelerated the end of the Soviet system. What are your reflections on this pivotal event and its legacies 25 years later? I belong to, I think, a small minority in Russia, maybe about 10% of those in Russia think of the events back in August 91 as really fateful, really very, very important. I think it was a really unique or very rare moment in the Russian history when uh, the Russian people not just had a sense of what's right for their country and where they want their country to move from there, but people were ready to act and acted and came running, I mean, literally came running to stand up to their leader at the time, to the person who they trusted, Russia's President Boris Yeltsin, to stand up to him, to defend him, to join ranks against the coup plotters. This desire to act, this desire to commit their energies, despite the fear and actually even deprivations because the weather was horrible and it was raining, it was cold, it was scary. Of course, in reverse order, it was scary to begin with. Nobody knew how this would evolve. People were actually ready to die, but they came and they were there and the coup plotters lost. And this is how I remember those events, but as I said, I belong to a small minority. This is absolutely not how it is seen today. A majority in Russia think that either think of those events as a tragedy or as squabbling at the top. Somewhere there, members of the elites were squabbling, and this is all there is to it. Those events in uh, the Russian perception and the perception of, of the minority are seen more as, a, uh, as events that preceded the collapse of the Soviet Union much more than a victory of democracy over communism, as it was seen at the time. And if it is seen as a a collapse of the Soviet Union, I think it is very important to understand for people outside of Russia that the collapse of the Soviet Union is nothing to celebrate. For the Russian people, it was their country becoming smaller, weaker, losing its sphere of influence, people losing their habitual safety net, that was those events were absolutely not expected people really wanted the end of the communist dictatorship and uh, they no longer wanted the single party system but they absolutely did not work toward destroying their country 
that came as a completely unexpected and certainly not an event that people were happy about. The opposite is true, and I would remind that shortly after the events in 91, the collapse of the Soviet Union, new Russia emerges. Very soon, uh, in 93, the parliamentary election ended with a defeat of the pro-Kremlin and pro-Yeltsin forces ended in a victory for the party of Vladimir Zhirinovsky in 95. It was a victory for the communists. The atmosphere was that of irreconcilable opposition to the Kremlin, to Boris Yeltsin. His every initiative was torpedoed. It was a time of political turmoil. And all those events overshadowed the significance of the events in uh, 1991. So these days, and as we celebrate it, is probably too grand a word, the 25th anniversary of those events in August this year was not something that was celebrated. Let me ask you, so there, of course there was another anniversary just a few weeks ago, and that was the, the crisis with the Duma and the shelling of the Duma in 1993. How is that moment remembered and understood today? Well, 93, it was just two years after 91, was part of the turmoil. At that point, it was an event that can even be described as a mini-civil war. Right in the heart of Moscow, it was a bizarre civil war which was limited to a very small space. And within, I don't know, 15-minute walk from the White House, then uh, the seat of the Russian parliament where those events were unfolding, there was no idea that anything that dramatic was happening. And yet, just unlike the events in 91, when uh, three men, three young men were killed, actually by accident. Uh, in 93, the number of victims was much larger. There was a severe shootout outside of the television station. Uh, many people were killed outside the White House. Today, I would say again, a majority certainly sympathizes with the opposition to uh, uh, President Yeltsin. President Yeltsin, who had to step down in, I have to say, disgrace, his popularity dropped to single digits. He narrowly escaped impeachment. So uh, as people look back in 93, and the way it's described is referred to as the shelling of, or even the shooting of the parliament. So there is very little sympathy to President Yeltsin and much more support for his opposition. Those events also were crucial in splitting the uh, liberal forces, or as in those days they were more commonly referred to as democratic forces. President Yeltsin's supporters, some of them, and quite a few of them, actually could not put up with the fact that the parliament was shelled, could not and would not share the responsibility with President Yeltsin with using this way to deal with what was a coup, a coup in an attempt to basically oust him. So the fact that it was resolved by force was something that effectively split the, the democratic or liberal forces. And this is one more reason why those events are seen today as unadmissible, as an unacceptable way to act in a political crisis. Let's go back to ideology a bit, because the way you, you spoke about how 1991 is remembered and understood in the narrative that's that's told and narrative that the state tells, but also the narrative that people seem to ascribe to. For me, as someone who knows 
a lot about the post-revolutionary period in 1920s and 1930s. It's the narrative stands in stark contrast, and because in the early Soviet period, as we all know, there was no lament for the collapse of the Tsar system, and and the the narrative was a positive one in the sense that we are building socialism, we're building a new country, we're building a new era. But what's interesting about the narrative that you gave for the for the collapse of the Soviet Union in 19 in the coup in 1991 is that, like you said, it's more about the collapse of the Soviet Union rather than the building of a new Russia, right? That that narrative of the new Russia was really quite short-lived. So my question is, is that, as you said, it's difficult to pin down a coherent ideology for the Putin system, but there are some common themes. So why don't you explain a little bit more what some of those common things are and what role ideology is playing in the Putin system today? Well, to begin with, I would, of course, fully agree with you that there is such a uh, dramatic difference between the ideological or historical narrative of uh, the communist regime and today. There was so much clarity. In, uh, indeed, there was an ideological doctrine, the uh, Marxism-Leninism, that underlied the way communist regime looked at the world, interpreted what was going on. We had a formative event there was a very clear beginning of the Soviet Union, of the socialist, the communist regime. It was the Great October Socialist Revolution of 1917. That was the beginning, the end of the Ancien Regime and the beginning of a new era. An era was the word that was very commonly used in the Soviet Union. There was a founding father, or founding fathers, for a while, Lenin, Stalin, then it was just Lenin, but, but Lenin forever, and by the way, Lenin's still in the mausoleum, and that's interesting. So, Founding Fathers, a formative event that was celebrated, as you said, the old regime was gone, the new regime was ushered in, and that was celebrated every year. It was the most important national holiday in the Soviet Union. Every uh, November 7 was a grand celebration. There was a pantheon of heroes. There was this system where every, everything was in its place and everyone knew the rhetoric and knew the formula. Today, there's very little clarity about any of this. Now, when does the Russian statehood begin? The new Russian statehood? There is no such date. In fact, it is intentionally obfuscated. When does it begin? There is actually no beginning. Russia has been there forever, forever great. Who are our new heroes? And this is a very interesting concept. Lenin's still in the mausoleum. All over Russia, there are streets and squares named after him. Every Russian uh, town and city still has a Lenin statue. But is he glorified as the most important hero? No. And in the Soviet, in the, I'm sorry, in the Soviet period too, you also had the veneration of local heroes as well. It's not, you have Lenin, but there's a whole pantheon of active people, founding, local founding fathers, and also martyrs. And you don't have this now for, for the new No, system. actually, there are local heroes here and there. And actually, it's interesting you bring this up because just today, a new statue was inaugurated in the city of Ariol. And uh, surprise, surprise, it was a, sta a statue of Ivan the Terrible. And that we will come to that. So no clarity whatsoever. There is, if you look at public opinion polls, who is the greatest Russian, the most uh, significant or magnificent historical figure in Russia? And I'm sorry to say this is Stalin, but he is an invisible figure. There are indeed a few Stalin statues appearing here and there, but he is by no means glorified by the Kremlin. In fact, sometimes even the op well, not exactly the opposite, but 
There is criticism, and Putin a short while ago ordered a uh, monument to Stalin's, Stalin's victims to be erected in Moscow. It has not been erected yet, but it will be because it, it's, it's uh, an order issued by Putin. Russian communists still glorify Lenin. Putin has been critical in several times already. He uh, said things that sounded critical critical of Lenin. So no clarity whatsoever. So there are, I would say there are three pillars of what can be referred to as Russian ideology in quotation marks. One is Russia's greatness and the greatness of the state and the infallibility of the state at all times. That's really, truly important. Anti-Western, anti-Western sentiments, rhetoric, perception, first and foremost focused on America, anti-Americanism, but more broadly the West. And the third pillar is traditional values. But if you look beyond these formula, you find actually, especially as far as traditional values are concerned, lots of things are very controversial. Lots of things are uncertain and fuzzy. If you look at historical narrative, there is this sense of Russia's great, have been great at all times. But there is a difference between, let's say, the historical narrative that one finds at a permanent exhibition at this uh, exhibition center, which is called VDNH, Exhibition of Economic Achievements. There is a new exhibition there, which has been in place for, I think, slightly over a year, which is a glorification of the monarchy. And every monarch presented uh, throughout, throughout Russian history is seen as infallible, as impeccable by virtue of being Russian ruler. It is, the exhibition has been put together and sponsored by uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. But that narrative is not what one would find, for instance, in the school history books. And this is not a kind of narrative that you would find in the speeches of uh, the Russian, of the members of the Russian establishment. So as long as one recognizes that the state is great at all times, one can worship or glorify Lenin or Stalin or Brezhnev or Nicholas II, and all goes, anything is accepted, as long as you stick to this principle that the, the, the state is great and uh, uh, the state should not be challenged. You will fi you find even more controversy when you look at traditional values, which is proclaimed as a formula. But if, for instance, just one example, if you look at the uh, television series that are popular among the Russian people today, you will f hardly find adhering to traditional values there. This brings up another issue, and, and this goes to a, um, a quote from Putin that you used in your New Yorker uh, piece on, the, the on 1991, and, and Putin said the following in 2012, quote, in order to revive national consciousness, we need to link historical eras and get back to understanding the simple truth that Russia did not begin in 1917 or even in 1991, but rather that we have a common continuous history spanning over a thousand years. And we must rely on it to find inner strength and purpose in our national development. So here, you definitely have this idea of all conflict is flattened. My, my question on this is, next year is the 100th anniversary of the Revolution of 1917, the, one of the most divisive moments in Russian history. What do you think is going to be done with this anniversary in relationship to this understanding of Russian history and the Russian state as this eternal smoothness? 
Well, this is a very good question to which I don't have an answer, even though I've been thinking, and not just myself, of course, people who are interested in Russian ideology against, in quotation marks, have been asking this question of themselves and each other and discussing it at uh, seminars and uh, roundtables. I don't think we will have a single clear-cut narrative that would be shared and imposed on everyone. I think communists, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, will have its way of celebrating the Great October Socialist Revolution as a great event. But I don't think this will this this narrative and this perception will be shared by the Russian officialdom. Already, the new concept of teaching history in schools, this is something that was commissioned by Putin and a group of historians and government officials, spent months on putting together the single concept, not a single school book, but a single concept of teaching history. And uh, it is interesting that they started with identifying 31, I think it was 31, difficult questions. So it is recognized that there are difficult questions, but I don't think this committee found a good way to resolve all of them. But one of the things that they did was to replace the concept of the Great October Socialist Revolution that people of my generation and even younger than myself, people who went to school in the Soviet days, you know, this Great October Socialist Revolution was just like a in his character. Uh, no, no pauses between words. So now it's replaced by something that's called Great Russian Revolution, which begins in uh, 1905 and lasts for a number of years. And it was the time of upheaval, difficult time in the Russian history. The desire to obfuscate, not to... Um, there was one scholar who made a very good observation that If the Kremlin tries to get more articulate and more precise about its ideological concepts, these concepts lose their strength. Actually, this uh, uncertainty and uh, the, the, the fuzziness is an asset, not a drawback. And just like Russian policy and decision making in Russia is unconstrained by any checks or balances, unbound by any announced policy policy course. This is an underlying principle of Putin's rule. He's unconstrained. He can make any decision at any time, change course without giving anybody an account. The flexibility of the ideological tool that the government is using fits very well in this unconstrained nature of decision-making and this power, this capacity of ad hoc decisions. So in this, I think, will um, also guide the celebration of um, 1917. There will be different narratives. I'm sure the Kremlin, Kremlin aides, they are very good at it, will come up with something that will be evasive enough, yet catchy, so that television and whatever loyalists would want to, uh, to pick it up would know what to say. But they would not impose it on everyone, and they would certainly allow the communists to celebrate it the way communists want. That's, that's fascinating because it, it also suggests, uh, and some people have, have raised this issue in terms of the Kremlin. I, I think probably Peter Pomorantsov is one of the main advocates of this, of the inherent postmodernism of the system in the sense that there are no grand narratives. There's a lot of little narratives. They still fit within a certain parameters of acceptability, but nonetheless, there are many little narratives. And this brings me to the question about the media, which plays a, a very major role, and it's something that you've been writing about recently as well. 
How do you understand the Russian media and here both television and print media? What's its place within Russian society today? Well, I'd say, of course, media is no longer reduced to just television and print. And increasingly, all this media realm is merging and becoming digital, and uh, there is no longer a line that can be drawn between this and that. However, having said that, television is an indispensable political resource of the Kremlin. And it was one of the first and very early moves made by Putin uh, when he became Russian president uh, 16 years ago to take major television channels under control. And he did that very successfully. The most mass audience media, they were and they are in Russia, mass audience national television channels were taken under control by the end of Putin's first term. Today, we have in the television realm what I think may be described as an oligopoly. That is, very, very few owners that have concentrated television assets in their hands. Basically, it is the state itself and two more owners who own basically all of about two dozen Russian television channels today. Some of them are news and entertainment, some entertainment only, but the, this television property is concentrated in the hands of either itself or loyalists that the government can rely on. So this is how television is an indispensable political resource. And news coverage is easily coordinated. There is not much difference channel to channel. And television has become a very effective tool that can shape public perceptions. It can easily play down, boost, ignore, smear any development figure, party, or whatever. All through the time of prosperity, when the price of oil was mercifully high and rising, television was mostly used to demobilize the people, providing them with a great deal of really state-of-the-art, first-class quality television entertainment, and only mobilizing them in time for elections. A very important function, arguably the most important function of television, has been from the start to shape a perception that Putin is a leader of no alternative. Otherwise, it was used occasionally. This changed. This changed in 2014, right after the crisis in Ukraine began, and then Crimea was taken, and then the war in Donbass began, and especially the time after to the beginning of the war in uh, eastern Ukraine and Donbass, and basically the second half of 2014 and 2015, when uh, television tool was turned into a non-stop propaganda instrument. Even today, this is no longer the case, but compared to uh, the previous time, it was a gigantic shift because news shows began to last much longer than before. The content of news was much more Ukraine than it was Russia. Ukraine was portrayed as this country seized by fascists, by a junta, and this shaped a, this almost hysterical perception of Russia is on the side of good, and there is this horrific evil that is now Ukraine and Ukrainian government. So television is extremely effective in shaping the anti-Western and anti-American perception. 
in smearing those forces in Russia, the opposition forces or um, independent civic players. Anyway, it is effective and it can shape almost any perception that uh, the government needs. Also, it should be said that television is run not by, you know, some stooges. It is run by very talented people who are willing and eager and highly professional assistants of the Kremlin policy. And they should be given credit for using this instrument and honing it to, to perfection, knowing what they can or cannot do and uh, shaping whatever perception that is needed. In, in one of the, your recent writings that will be published, I think, next year, and you were uh, kind to share a draft with me, you and your co-authors write that state TV channel, what they sell is not accurate information, but emotional gratification to make Russians feel good about themselves and their country. And I found this really interesting because as I was reading this on the bus, after I read it, I was listening to a, a recent story about right-wing media in the United States. And the issue of emotion and the use of emotions was also prominent in right-wing media in the United States as well. Talk about the role of emotions in Russian media. Is this just part of the general media landscape globally? Or is there something particular in the Russian media and its use of emotions? I would say this is by no means reduced to Russia. And actually, just this year, and I think recently, as recently as in August, such respected publications as The Economist and The New York Times were writing about post-truth politics. Of course, the inspiration for that was Donald Trump and his campaign, but not. I think it is important to keep this in mind when uh, criticizing, deservedly so, the way the Russian government is using television for propaganda purposes. This is not Russia alone. It should be remembered, the phenomenon that you mentioned, and in general, uh, it's uh, truly about politics that is no longer fact-based in many cases, and it is true about media and not just the Russian television. Where Russia is different is not that the government is using the media in, in this way, television first and foremost. What is different is politics, and the politics of a political monopoly, of the Kremlin dominating the political scene, of unconstrained and unchallenged power of the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin, who is not constrained by any checks or balances, any political opposition, so that there is this television resource that is an indivisible resource used by the Kremlin. And this does not mean, of course, that there is no way for alternative expression. Yes, there is. There are outlets for those who are interested. There are outlets, even television outlets, mostly it is online television, there's print, there, there are websites, there is, I would say, quite an intense exchange going on in the Russian Facebook, which in Russia is, you may say, an outlet or a medium used by the Russian liberals quite, quite actively so. Problem is, there is a very li limited demand for that in the Russian society. So if you are interested in this alternative view, there, it is not a problem for you to find, uh, to find uh, alternative analysts and even investigative reporting and news reporting 
but not too many are interested in it. This is the main difference. Not that television may be used as a tool of propaganda, which is totally oblivious or disregards facts. This is where the difference lies. But I would like, really would like to emphasize that alternative sources exist. And this is not scorched earth. And in fact, I mean, there's so much to read Every, on, a day, on a daily basis in Russian and English, if, if anybody is interested, because some of those websites have an English version of their news for those who are interested. It is just that the Kremlin has, in a quite subtle and sophisticated way, uh, reduced them to irrelevance already a long time ago. And, of course, in the past years, there has been more pressure. There has been this war of attrition. Slowly but surely, they are being uh, this. This realm is shrinking, which is much easier to do because of a limited demand. And finally, as you mentioned early on, there has been a series of crises since Putin came back to for his third term, and you, you listed some of these early on. I won't go over them again. And you've spoken a bit how this is this has also altered the the way the regime operates in terms of its increasing personalization the increasing use of television as propaganda. Given all of this, and I'm going to do the horrible thing of asking you to anticipate, <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you anticipate moving forward for, for Russia's both domestic and international scenes? For somebody who dares analyzing uh, the Russian development, there's hardly a thing less gratifying than trying to predict the future. And maybe even less gratifying if it's only possible today. The, the developments have proceeded at a very rapid pace, and especially this applies to, uh, wouldn't even call it foreign policy. Russia has become militarized. It's a country at war. Its military has become more powerful, more formidable, more state-of-the-art. It used to be a difficult partner to the West. Now it's a threat. We are headed into uh, a very turmoiled and very dangerous period, that's for sure. And the the, uh, the crisis between Russia and the and the West, I think, is a chronic one. It will not go away. We might hope, I think, in the best case scenario, that there are no major horrific crises like I don't know of a scope of the Cuban Missile Crisis that is in store for us. So we may hope, but we can only hope. There's no, there's nothing anybody can do at this point, especially not in Russia where the, there is a uh, single decision maker. And this is, of course, Vladimir Putin. So future is very unclear. It is unclear because uh, of the economic decline. We have not spoken much about this today, but the uh, economic situation is alarming. We don't know just how Putin is getting prepared for the... Um, forthcoming presidential election in 2018. This adds to the uncertainty and unpredictability. Is he running? At this point in time, it certainly looks like he does. And he has a legal right to, or to run for another six years. How does he plan to mobilize the voters? Because the parliamentary election that we just had showed a, uh, well, the government intentionally discouraged the quote-unquote unwelcome voters, that is the uh, big cities electorate. This is not acceptable for Putin's re-election if he stands for election in 2018. So he needs to bring back this most efficient, most energetic electorate in Russia to somehow support him. So there are only question marks. Does Putin have further escalation in mind on the world scene? There are lots of fears expressed by in the American press these days, not unjustified. 
Does he have this in mind? We have no idea. Will he figure out a way to convert his success in establishing and lately consolidating control over the Russian society into effective development? Same applies to his, well, I stop short of calling this a success, but still, I mean, he is now seen as unpredictable, dangerous player that nobody is able to, uh, to influence. So can he convert, again, this achievement of raising Russia's stature on the world scene into uh, something that would work for the good of the Russian people? All of these are are question marks, but arguably the most important question of all is, of course, Russian foreign policy and where the current crisis will lead us. That was Masha Lipman, a frequent commentator on contemporary Russian affairs. She is currently the head editor of the journal Contrapunkt, a contributor to The New Yorker and co-editor with Nikolai Petrov of The State of Russia, What Comes Next, published by Palgrave Macmillan. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud. You can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.